0: So I'm in Jude today. Jude chapter 24 and 25. I I hope you'll join me there. Hope you'll join us tonight, uh, today, four o'clock, for our our little family gathering. Just a short business meeting, but then mostly prayer. I know that a lot of you are struggling. A lot of you are are bearing a a heavy weight. And this is going to be an opportunity to have your church family pray for you. If you want to share what's going on in your life, you'll have that opportunity but also, it's an opportunity for us to come together and just join together in prayer. There's power in that. There's tremendous power when God's people pray together. So I know, I know you're going to go home. It's going to be rainy. You're going to want to take a nap. The you know, football championship games are on. I, nobody loves football more than me. I'm going to be here at four unless somebody strikes me dead. So you can be here, and I hope you will. It's going to be a good time. Jude 24 and 25. Jude is a very short book, only one chapter, so that's why I say 24 and 25. Two verses, but we're going to talk a little before we get to those two verses. Uh, back when I was in my 20s, I took a defensive driving course. And some of you remember back in the day, I don't know if it's still this way today, but back in the day, if you got a speeding ticket... You took a defensive driving course, the speeding ticket wouldn't appear on your permanent record, and so your insurance wouldn't go up. And so that's why a lot of people took those courses. Of course, it's also possible that people could take those courses just because they're good citizens and they want to be better drivers. And so I'll let you judge for yourself why I took a defensive driving course. Just remember, you know, Jesus was against judgmental people, so I just want to keep that in mind. But... I will sum up defensive driving for you. Defensive driving comes down to don't assume the other guy knows what he's doing. When you're behind the wheel, don't assume that the guy coming towards you isn't on his phone or drunk or half asleep or just has no business being on the road and is not going to drift across that center line. Be on the lookout for that. Watch out for that, for that woman who's backing out of her driveway. She may not remember. She may not see you behind her. She may just cr- cram right into you. So in other words, be vigilant, be on guard, drive defensively. And that's a good analogy for life. Jesus said, be wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. We need to be aware there are bad people in the world. If you're a parent, you get this. You get this very, very well because uh, you want your kids to be happy and you want to believe that, that other people are good, but you know, I'm not letting my child go over to somebody's house just because they invited him. I need to know this person. I need to know what they're about and what they believe in and what their morals are. I need to understand what's going on in their lives before I entrust them with my kids. At the same time, you don't want to keep your kids locked up in the four walls of your house and only listen to you because there are all these great adults who want to invest in your children's lives. There are teachers and coaches and ministers and volunteers and people who will enrich their lives in ways that you can't. So you have to walk that line between vigilance and living in fear. And it's important to walk that line well. I'll give you another example. Any of you women who are single, you know it's a dangerous world out there. And there's a lot of guys who are, well, there's words for them, but I can't share them from the pulpit. There are bad men in the world, and yet you can't look at every man as if he's Jack the Ripper, as if he's the next Ted Bundy. You can't live that way. And so you have to walk the line between, I'm going to be careful, but I'm not going to be paranoid. I'm going to I'm going to be on my guard and not be easily taken in, but at the same time, I'm not going to be suspicious of every person. I'm going to treat people as if I love them because that's what I'm called to do. And I tell you all this because Jude is this little book about vigilance. It's about being on guard because we live in a dangerous, scary world, especially in a spiritual sense, not just a physical sense. But the last two verses, after spending 23 verses telling us to be on guard, Jude gives us the last two verses, which are a song of praise, a doxology, a song of praise to God, because he knows, Jude, after all, was one of Jesus' physical brothers. He said, we're created to praise. We are made to praise the Lord and worship Him, and we are at our best when that happens. So if you really want to overcome the scary things in this world, be on guard, be careful, lock your doors, but worship God. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition, right? I mean, you just you have to have both. You have to have both. Uh, so Jude, we're going to, we're going to talk about both halves of that equation in this message. We're going to talk about the specific reason why Jude tells us to be on guard. And then we're going to talk about why he tells us to praise. All right. So two sermons in one, same price, two sermons in one. You ready? So verse three and four, if you ever uh, forget what Jude is about, just read verses three and four. And you'll remember, it says this, dear friends, Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So what Jude is telling us to watch out for is, that there are false teachers who will slip into churches and lead the people of God astray. And it happened in biblical times, and it's happening today. And his instruction to us is, contend for the faith. The word contend doesn't sound very aggressive. If I told you that in Greek, it literally means to fight, to wrestle, to tackle someone to the ground and hold them down so they can't hurt your family. That's what that word means. Fight for the faith. Jesus and the apostles gave us a list of teachings, a list of doctrines that save us, that that connect us to the Lord, that keep us on the track of truth. And we have to fight to hold on to those. Because ever since this started 2,000 years ago, there have been people slipping in to take us away from those truths, to take us away from the path that God wants us to walk. So what I want to do in this first half of the message is I want to talk about the three different kinds of false teachers you need to watch out for. There are three different kinds that are mentioned in the Scriptures, and I see them in the church today, uh, all, all around us. So number one is the kind that specifically Jude is talking about here when he says, "...who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord." And these are people who will come in and say, now I know, I know that there were standards 2,000 years ago that made sense. There were moral standards that we held to. There were lifestyles we condemned. There were ways that we did not allow people to act. But God's all about grace. And what really matters is that you treat people with kindness. And when it says they deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord, these are people who will say, yes, Jesus was a wonderful person. He lived an exemplary life. He taught an amazing moral teaching, the most uh, enlightened moral teaching anyone's ever heard. So if we just follow His commands, if we just live by His example, then we're doing what He told us to do. But they never get to the blood of Christ is necessary to cleanse us of our sins. The, the, the atoning death of Jesus is necessary for us to be saved. They don't, they don't get to the resurrection. They don't get to Christ as our only Savior. And unfortunately, I mean, if you're, if you're my age or older, you, you probably are aware there are whole Christian denominations that once we're strong, that once we're vibrant, that once we're setting the standard for the Christian faith in this country and winning souls, and now they're dwindling, and now they're struggling because over time, so many of these people have slipped in and said, it's, it's not really about the things the Bible says. It's just about being decent to others. And because we want to be decent because we want to be kind. That's a very seductive teaching. It enables us to go to dinner parties and sit in boardrooms and we don't have to feel like we're out of step with anyone else because we're just about being kind. Which, after all, is a biblical virtue. And then there's a second kind, a of false teacher that's mentioned in Scripture. 1 Timothy 6.5. Uh, Paul writes about these people. He calls them depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. These are the people who will stand behind their pulpits or be on their radio shows or on their television shows, and they will take parts of the Scripture out of context, ignoring the fact that Jesus and His disciples were poor and suffered incredible hardship to get us the gospel, ignoring the many teachings in the Bible that say that the hard times we go through and the times of struggle and the times of failure are at least as important in our spiritual growth as the times when we're on top of the world. But they'll take out those few passages out of context to make you think what God really wants is for you to be happy for you to be successful for you to be well off for you to have everything you want and that's a very seductive teaching for a very materialistic country and that's why these kinds of preachers well prosperity gospel works for them they're very prosperous They're making good money off of the donations of people who want to hear what they have to say. And they're able to say, look at this amazing watch that I'm able to afford and and these $5,000 sneakers that I'm able to buy and this incredible car that I can drive. And you think God doesn't approve of me? Look at my palatial mansion that my kids and I live in. And yet, they're ignoring the clear Word of God and they're selling people a bill of goods while their ministries are booming. Then there's a third kind. This is the one I'm most worried about on a personal level because if you grew up like I did in a church tradition like Baptist or another that really emphasizes the preaching of God's Word and however every one of us is responsible to know God's Word, we don't usually fall for that first kind or that second kind of false prophet that I mentioned. We spot those kinds of people from a mile away and we say, okay, that's not true. That's not right. But this third kind, they tend to suck us in. Jesus in Matthew 7, 15 through 16 said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. See, we don't see them because they appear to be truth tellers. They appear to be bold preachers of the truth of the scriptures. They're very successful at it. They're very effective at it. They appear to be sheep, but inwardly in their hearts, in their inner lives, in their character, They're wolves in in the clothing of sheep. When Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits, every time fruits are mentioned in the New Testament, it's always talking about character. See, where we make a mistake is we read that and we say, oh, you judge a man by his fruit. Well, you know, his church is doing great, so obviously God approves of him. You know, his ministry is successful. I love listening to him. So obviously he's a man of God. And these are people who, if you listen to them all day and all night, you'd never hear them say anything in doctrinal error but their hearts are far from God. Their character does not reflect the character of Christ. And I don't care how bold a man is in preaching the truth if he's not humble, if he's not kind, if he abuses his staff, if he neglects his family, if he won't... Submit to accountability when people come and say, I don't understand why you made this decision, or I don't, I, I'm not privy to the financial dealings of our church. Can you let me know where the money's going? If he throws up roadblocks and says, no, no, you stay out of that. It's all about me. I get to decide. Then I don't care how effective he is behind a pulpit. That is a false prophet. And unfortunately, a lot of churches like this one, a lot of churches just like us, have empowered people, wolves in sheep's clothing, to do horrific things. And some of you know the stories, and some of you know the names. And it can happen here if we're not careful. I remember being in a meeting with a bunch of Christians from different backgrounds, and there was a woman there who was from a different branch of Christianity, and and she said something I've never forgotten. She shook her head and she said, you know, part of our problem in my my kind of church is we'll take any young man who's articulate and has good teeth and we'll try to make him a preacher. And I said, ma'am, it's not just your branch of Christianity. We have to be more careful with who we entrust to teach the Word of God and to lead a church And yet after all of that, after those severe warnings for 23 verses, all of a sudden, here's how Jude chooses to close his book. Verses 24 and 25. Here's your doxology. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So why can we praise even in a world that's so messed up that you can't even necessarily trust the person who's teaching the Bible to you, that you have to be on guard even in church? How can we still live in such a way that we have joy in our hearts and we praise God? There are three things he encourages us to praise God for, and the first one is he is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able to keep you from falling. And I don't mean in a physical sense. I mean, we're all clumsy to a certain degree. No, this is talking about to fall out of the will of God. This is talking about you're following God's plan, His path. You're walking alongside Him and suddenly you stumble and you fall off the path. And you're out there on your own where the Holy Spirit isn't there to guide you and protect you. And, and, and so Jude is telling you, listen, I've been warning you for 23 verses. I don't want you to live in fear, though. I want you to be vigilant, but I don't want you to worry. No one's going to snatch you out of the Father's hand because God's got you. He is able to keep you from stumbling. You know, I know that's good news and I should focus on the good news, but I need to show you the, the bad side of that, and that is this. He is able to keep you from stumbling if you stick with Him. You have to stick with Him. You have to entrust yourself to God. See, part of our problem as Christians, and listen, I'm a preacher saying this. I'm glad that you come on Sundays and you listen to this message, and I hope you get something out of it. But we've gotten to this point where we trust in human beings to be our source of spiritual sustenance. and We lap up whatever they say, and we don't examine it against the truth of the Word to see if what they're saying is true. Or we don't examine their lives to make sure they're really somebody we should be following. See, spiritual leaders are a gift from God and we're supposed to love them and respect them and make their job easier and pray for them and encourage them, but they're only human. They can't keep you from stumbling. I can't keep you from stumbling, but God can. So let me just say what I'm thinking so you know what I'm thinking. It's time, it's past time for us as Christians to to just give up the whole celebrity preacher culture where, where we worship this guy who's on TV or on a podcast or who writes lots of books and, and, and makes lots of money because we buy their products and we listen to whatever they say, whatever they say is true because he's my guy. And, and I'll be honest, I've got two or three of those people who are fairly well-known who, who feed my soul, but I constantly remind myself, that person, I don't even know him. He could stumble any day now. I can't put my faith in him. And for that matter... You can't put your faith in me. Not that I I see myself stumbling in the future. I, I, I want to testify to you that I am as sincere as possible, as sincere as I can be in the fact that I love you and I love the Lord, but I am only human. Let me just say this, whoever your favorite spiritual guide is, whether it's your your life group leader, or a a famous pastor, or a a pastor of another church, or me, whoever that happens to be, that person's not going to be there forever. They're going to die. They're going to retire. They're going to move away. Or they may even disqualify themselves from the ministry by stumbling. And when that happens, what are you going to do? Are you going to say, well, I guess... I guess that's it for me in the spiritual life. I don't, I don't know how to function without him telling me what to do. It's your responsibility to be in the word yourself, to know God for yourself. And yes, it's a gift if you have talented people who help you know him better and who inspire you and make use of that, but hold on to those guys loosely because they can't keep you from stumbling. I can't keep you from stumbling, but Jesus can. Hold on to him. Number two, second reason to praise Him. Because He is able to make us perfect. I love how He says it. He will present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Blameless. We don't know what that feels like but someday we will. See, Christ is returning. That is is one thing I can promise you. I don't know much about the future. I don't know who's going to win the games today, who's going to win the election next year. I don't know anything, but I know Jesus is going to be back someday. And when we stand before him, those of us who are in Christ, see, for a lot of people, it's going to be a terrible day. I say that with sorrow in my heart, but for those of us who are in Christ, it's going to be the best day of our lives because it's the day we will be complete he says, he'll present you blameless with great joy. And joy is something different than happiness. Happiness is temporary. Joy lasts forever. Joy is based on something that can't go away. Joy is, incre- we, don't, we just get little snatches of it here in this world. But someday we will experience it when we are complete. And I've come up with these three analogies because this is what I do because I'm a preacher, you know. So three analogies to kind of help us envision what, this joy will feel like when we see Jesus for the first time face to face. And the first one is, have you ever babysat someone else's little ones? You know, like the ones we saw up here on the stage. Not, not, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. That's easy. I can do that. I mean, if you babysit somebody who's like three or four, kids that are little toddlers, right? And then the mom and dad come back. Can you picture the look on, their kids, on those kids' faces when mom and dad appear at the door? It's a look of incredible joy. And you're back. I, I'm so happy. This is what I've been dreaming of. And it doesn't matter that you have bent over backwards to give those kids a good time, right? You, you've let them eat the, the chocolate frosting out of the bowl. You've let them jump up and down on your furniture. You've let them ride on your back until no chiropractor can put you back together. You've done everything you could to entertain them. And yet, no matter what's going on, at the moment that doorbell rings and mom and dad's face appear in the doorway, they immediately forget about you. You don't exist. Whatever they were doing at that moment is gone and forgotten because mom and dad are back. And that's what it'll be for us. When Jesus appears, whatever we're so preoccupied with now, whatever we think we can't live without, all of a sudden we'll think, I don't even know what I was so worried about. Here he is. That's all that matters. So that's my first analogy. The second is Moving into your dream house. Now, most of us will probably never have this experience. I haven't, but I've seen it. My in-laws did it. Uh, You you know it. You're familiar with this idea that somebody might you know, sell their house and maybe move in with relatives for a while or, or rent some little apartment somewhere that's not too expensive, and they'll build their dream house on some beautiful piece of land. Now, for us, it's going to be like the day when you get out of that RV, when you get out of your kid's uh, you know, spare bedroom and you get the keys to your brand new house where you will live the rest of your life. You see, the day we accept Christ as our Savior, something amazing happens. God goes to work on us. His renovation process begins. It's called sanctification in the Bible, but it's just a word that means construction, renovation, and He's working on us. And He's building us into the person He created us to be. And on this day when we see Jesus, that process will be complete. We get the keys to our new house. And it may look a lot like the old one, but it's not like the old one. That's what it'll be like for us to walk into our dream house. And then there's a third analogy I want to share with you. And that's the analogy of a a prisoner being set free. And maybe it's because every time Shawshank Redemption is on AMC, I feel like I have to watch it again. Uh, But... I think about the end of the movie. If you haven't seen it, uh, I'm not going to ruin anything. I promise. But the movie ends with an old con, an old prisoner being set free. And he's on a bus. And he's riding. He's on this long, long, long bus ride. and the last lines, he says, I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. I think about that when I think about the day we see Jesus again because what we have that the world cannot give us and the world can't take away is a sure and a certain hope that we're on a journey to a great reunion. You know how that movie ends, right? After he says those words, you see this image and I won't ruin it for you, but it's one of the best endings in movie history. And I know, I know, not in any way a Christian movie. And yet, So much of the best fiction is great because somehow it speaks of eternal truth, even if the author didn't mean to. We have a hope, a sure and certain of hope, that we're headed to a destination that is greater than anything we can ever dream, and that keeps us going. See, we have a reason to rejoice because someday we will be perfect. Someday we will be blameless. Someday we'll stand in the presence of the One who loves us and died for us, and we'll have great joy. And then number three. That's all true because of number three, which says He is our Savior. And that's why we praise Him. It says the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I know you might look at that and say, wait a second, He says God is our Savior. I thought Jesus was our Savior. Isn't He the one that died for us on the cross? Yes. Yes. And there are people who, who misunderstand and they, they have a problem with this idea that, that God sent His only Son to die for our sins. And they're like, isn't that, isn't that like divine child abuse? And yet, you misunderstand the whole nature of God when you say that. There are six different times where God is called our Savior. There's a moment when, when Philip, one of the disciples in, in John 14, says to Jesus, hey, just show us the Father and that will be enough. In John 14:9, Jesus says... Don't you know me? Have, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. There's not three gods. There's one God. Yes, Jesus is God the Son come down in human form to intercede for us on the cross. But God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're one God. 2 Corinthians 5, 5.19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's not like Jesus was dying on the cross and God was just sort of up there passively watching. No, what was happening to Jesus was happening to God, was happening to the Holy Spirit. Now you might say, Jeff, I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense. But you know what? I don't understand it either. I'll be honest with you. I can't explain it. I can't wrap my mind around it. And yet, I still believe it's true. In the same way, I can't understand how a 300-ton 747 can get off the ground when little 165-pound me can only jump about that high. And yet, if you give me two tickets to some tropical paradise, I'm not going to sit down with an engineer and have him explain to me how aerodynamics works. I'm going to pack a bag, and I'm going to grab Carrie, and we're going to fly, and we're going to say, see you later. Enjoy the winter. You don't have to be able to understand it to believe it and for it to get you where you need to go. And then I want to deal with that word only. It says He is our only Savior. That's a very controversial word today. Especially in a time when uh, you know, our great-grandparents may have known there were people who believed in other gods, but they, didn't, they weren't around them. We have friends. We have neighbors, coworkers, family members who believe in different gods than us. Isn't it narrow-minded to say that our God is the only one? And yeah, I know that's a big question, and there's a lot to be said. And I dealt with it on a Wednesday night in the fall. If you want to hear more about what I believe about that, I can tell you how to find that. But let me give you the short answer. If you talk to your friend or your neighbor, or your coworker, or your family member of another faith, if you ask them if they're Muslim, do you believe that your way is the only way? They'll say, Well, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, Muhammad met with God in that that cave and he gave him the words that were written down in the Holy Quran and that's the way. He found the way. If you talk to a Buddhist, they'll tell you Siddhartha Kadama was an enlightened person who sat under a tree and meditated until he attained that enlightenment that we all need in order to overcome cruelty and suffering and and find a higher plane. And that's the way. If you talk to a Mormon, they'll tell you, Joseph Smith met the angel Moroni who gave him these golden tablets that he wrote down and became the Book of Mormon. And that's the way. All these different people say, we have found the way. But Jesus said, I am the way. He said, I will die for your sins. And then he did. He said, I'll rise again. And then he did. And he said, I'll I'll come back for you. And he will. So I want you to imagine that you live all by yourself, in a little house in the middle of a huge forest. Just one little house with acres and acres of trees all around. And one day you wake up and the whole forest is on fire. And the fire is getting closer and you just think, there's no hope for me. I'm, I'm going to die here. And all of a sudden you hear the sound of a helicopter above and, and it's descending and you see the, the smoke clear as this, as this helicopter descends and there's a guy on a rope ladder coming closer and closer to you and he holds out a hand and he says, come with me if you want to live. Come with me. I'm the only one who can save you. I'm the only person who can get you out of here. At that moment, do you say, that's a really narrow-minded thing to say. I don't even like helicopters. They're loud, and I don't like heights. I got a great truck, 4 by 4 big old engine. It's gotten me out of every fix I've ever been in. Can't I just drive through the flames? I'm a good digger. Can't I tunnel out? Now you don't say any of that. You say, I can't believe that you all went to all this trouble to rescue just one person in the middle of a forest fire, but I'm so glad you did. Yes, I'm jumping on board with you. So really the question today is, have you gotten on board with God? Because it's not about what you believe in your head. It's not about saying, yeah, okay, I I buy into all this stuff. Have you gotten on board? Because if you've gotten on board with Christ, it has changed your life. You're never the same again. And if you haven't, in just about three minutes, I'm going to pray, and you're going to have a chance, once we sing, to make that decision, to walk forward. That was God's amen, by the way, I'm I'm pretty sure. He does want you to come forward. But for many of us here who have made that decision, and it was a life-changing thing for us when we got on board with God, Just I want you to remember what it took to save you. A lot bigger resources were expended than a flight crew and a helicopter. The God of the universe changed all the rules, came down in human flesh, took your place, so you could be free. After all of that, do you really think he would ever let you go? See, God's got you. Yes, it's a scary world. Yes, we need to be careful. Yes, we can't be fools. But there's no reason to be afraid because we're in his hands.